Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joining you for the first time in season 10. It's double digits of the show. So excited to be here, Matt. 10 seasons. Who would have thought? Not us. We sure didn't think we'd make it this far. (laughs) It's like, it really is. It's just astounding to me that this thing has had legs to the extent that it has. Um, And honestly, it feels... It feels appropriate to be celebrating the 10th season of this show with a title that's as big as this one. You know, I feel like for all the guff that we've given Twilight Princess based on very old recollections, mind you, um, over Over a decade. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like for all the complaining that we've done about it since the show started, it is one of the core, like one of the tentpole Zelda titles. And um, as we've learned um, from our Discord community, if from nowhere else, it's one that people hold to the same standard as your Ocarina of Times and your Skyward Swords and your Wind Wakers and all those other things. And so it just feels appropriate to be covering this game for our 10th season as opposed to something like Spirit Tracks. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad we're hitting a big a big title. I think, you know, we can call it like the big five, I guess. You know, you've got your Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker, Majora's Mask, Tears of the, uh, Breath of the Wild, Twilight Princess. And, you know, for us, I think we put Skyward Sword in there instead of something. But, but uh, you know, we're hitting one of the big, big seven. We'll, we'll, we'll round it up to a big seven uh, titles. And uh, I'm really glad that we're we're doing this one. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to and have enjoyed so far. Uh, playing it again like it's been such a long time since we played it since i played it specifically um we'll we'll talk about the history and everything when for sure we, you know sure but but I, i'm just really looking forward yeah, to it like been, it's been a minute for sure it, it's exciting yeah no it definitely is um and i you know we just have been looking forward to this one in some ways for quite a long time mm-hmm. so um and honestly just selfishly you know we did back to back uh, top down seasons, right? I mean, I know we took a break in there for Tears of the Kingdom stuff, um, but we weren't able to cover that in the way that we normally do, do. Th- in the way that we normally do. And so, it in some and ways, you still haven't even beaten it. I'm close. I'm super close. I'm just, uh, it's just shrines at this point. I just have to finish getting the shrines and then go beat the game. Like I've done everything else. So I'm working on it. Um, but yeah, it just it does feel good to get back to a 3D game. Um, and especially after a fairly underwhelming top-down game, right? 
I'm surprised a little bit to hear you say that you're excited slash relieved. I don't know if you said relieved, but I think I heard relieved uh, to get back to a 3D title because you are a uh, you're definitely more of a 2D stan. Oh, do you hear that? That's perfect. Yeah, that's good. That's good. This may turn into a Song of Storms episode. I'm very excited for that. We are under the awning of your uh, courtyard, so we are protected. Yeah, unless things really start going sideways, and by things I mean the rain. Like, unless the rain starts going sideways. Literally going sideways. Then I think we're fine. But, um, ooh, that's nice, though. It's the atmosphere. It is, is, and especially appropriate for this game. So to to your point, Matt, I I truly do consider myself kind of, I guess, Zelda ambidextrous. I know at ambi... I'm I'm a, I'm an equal enjoyer. Um, I'm a Zelda. You're, you're curious. I'm a, <laughs> sure. I'm a Zelda <laughs> omnivore. Is how I'm going to put this. Um, I, you know, I have more love for the top-down games than you do, but I would say that I have an equal amount of love for the 3D games as you do. For so, sure. For sure. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm no more or less excited to get into one than the other. It's just, I'm excited to get into this now because we've been doing, you know, the other style for a bit. So, um, it's, it's just a change of pace is, is kind of what's really nice about this for me. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I I respect that. I get it. How are things going in general, Matt? Oh, you know, uh, they're going good. Started a new job a couple weeks ago. Uh, things have been really crazy busy just in life in general for both of us, I think. Um, specifically for me, your know, wedding planning and everything that goes along with that on top of having a new job. Like, you know, it's just been kind of a lot. So, yeah, your your wedding is still on the distant horizon. But uh, mm-hmm. before we get there, we've got, um, you know, <laughs> Jackson's no- wedding, notable third Willoughby brother Jackson's wedding, which is coming up in November. And we're in like full swing of like, you know, wedding events. All, all kinds that. of stuff. Bachelor party planning, uh, you know, everything that goes along with that, we are fully involved in. And uh, that's been, yeah, it's just been busy. So, um, you know, I think it's been good. It's It's been a good release to have another Zelda game that so far we enjoy playing, <laughs> or at least I enjoy playing, uh, to distract from those things during the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, this is kind of a, a touch point throughout our week that you and I have both come to rely on. And that's <laughs> yes. like, that's really nice. There's, there's a stability and like a comfort to that, that I really do appreciate. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm back to being able to play these games in bed, which is always great. I mean, well, yeah, you are. Yeah. Well, I, and actually, technically, so are you. And I'll tell you how in a minute. But um, I mean, I know Phantom Hourglass technically was one that I could have been playing in bed. Uh, but as Mike <laughs> figured out, <laughs> that is not something you want to do if you have someone sleeping in that bed with you. Exactly. So Mike, Mike learned that lesson early last season, but just decided to ride it out for the entire rest of the game. So he's a brave man. He's braver than I am. Um, but yes, uh, portable gaming is truly a wonderful gift. Um, Matt, there's one thing uh, I want to do real quick before we kind of get into the main bulk of the episode. We were trying to figure out uh, what we were going to be sipping on tonight. And I think we've come up with a new bit. I, I love bits. Yeah. All I do is bits, bits, bits. No matter what. Uh, so basically, I think what we're going to start doing is we're going to go into a recording session with a double a double glass of some whiskey. And that's just what we're going to have. Um, 
and that makes things easier on us, right? Because we're, we're not, not having getting to, up and going yeah, into refill. Yeah, and, make yeah. new drinks, whatnot. But uh, the new bit that we're going to start is what are Lyndon and Matt sipping this week? So, well, to to be fair, this isn't exactly new. We're just revisiting it. We used to do this more so, regularly. That's true. Well, I guess instead of new, I'm going to say we're we're recommitting to the bit. Uh, with the intention of making it a weekly, very small part of the opening of our podcast. I think that yes, sounds fun. I, I agree. Okay. So this week, Matt, would you like to tell our listeners what we're sipping on? Uh, well, thank you for giving me the honor, even though it's your bourbon. Uh, we are sipping on a Willet Rye. Willet four-year rye. I was going to say, it's not even a bourbon. No, it's, it's a rye, but, yeah. you know. Whatever. This is a Willett Family Estate four-year rye whiskey, 55.1 alcohol by volume, which translates to 110 proof. I am a big big enjoyer of rye whiskeys. Yeah. Um, I haven't had any of of this one in a little while, uh, but I have found the Willett four-year rye to be one of the best whiskeys that a person can buy in the $60 range. You've had that bottle for a while, and it's been open, so it's aerated real nicely, so it's pulling out more of the flavors. You're getting more complexity. Um, For those of you who don't drink whiskey very much, or if you do drink whiskey, uh, but you may not know, uh, we have a bottle that's open, and you keep it, you know, well maintained in a room temperature environment with the cork uh it aerates more to really pull out flavors and add complexity over time yeah i wouldn't leave that on a windowsill or anything yeah no don't leave it in your car uh especially if you live in texas but you know if you keep it in a in a decently temperature controlled area somewhere nice uh it just really adds some flavor complexity and profile uh, as it stays open. Um, some whiskeys do not benefit from that. I think younger whiskeys can sometimes get kind of bitter, oaky, and uh, maybe, or sometimes the opposite, too sweet. But um, uh, these ryes especially, I think they open up to get some more earthiness and flavor complexity out of it that I generally enjoy. So, uh, you know, Very to nice. each their own. Well, let's do, a, let's do a little cheers to a new episode of Pod. Cheers indeed. New season to season 10 of Pod. Oh, hell yeah. Delicious. Man, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Delicious. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. Enough talking about whiskey, enough catching up. It's time to talk about The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Let's get the housekeeping out of the way and then jump right into it. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game, then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. One of the benefits uh, that is included in that is that we do a monthly bonus episode. Uh, We recorded one just the other night, and that one's going to be going up on Friday. And for anyone who hasn't, uh, I think we've teased this on the show before now, but the uh, topic of this episode is that we will be covering uh, the first third of the one season uh, 1989 Legend of Zelda cartoon series. Uh, We watched, what was it? Did we watch four episodes that night? 
Yes. And we, yeah, so we covered the first four episodes. We're going to have three different bonus episodes covering that season of show. Uh, and we have a whole discussion about that that's going to, going to be going live on Friday. Um, it's going to be exclusive to our Master Sword and Big Gorn Sword patrons for the first month. And then after that time, uh, it will become available to Kokiri Sword patrons as well. So if you like bonus content, get over into that Patreon, check it out. Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword there comes the rain we love it additionally one of the benefits that master sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show those legendary individuals are jeremy derek cosmic link jerry dante 2 tom andy stephanie billy connor rachel shepherd street matthew chris daniel fallout 907 kelso tiffany the star daxel patrice stephanie dark nuck il maestro himself brian george mike dylan lennon melanie kolku aiden rowan josh nick dante gep Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most... Ahem. These are the most legendary of individuals and... We would embark upon a new adventure in a twilight-soaked alternate version of our own reality with any one of them at any time. Absolutely would do that, 100%. But without further ado, this is the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering Twilight Princess Chapter 1. We're going to try to do something a little different today. Um, We're going to have our beginning of the season discussion about our history with the game before we actually get into parts one, two, three, four, five, and six of the Sacred Realms rundown. Um, I think that just sort of makes sense. That feels good to do. Uh, we typically, I, I, I think whenever we have guests on, for instance, we typically kind of have this discussion prior to housekeeping in the Sacred Realms In, in the Marin open, yeah. yeah. So I think that you know, I think it's a good idea to probably just start notching this in here. Section Um, 0.5. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Right. So uh, my history with Twilight Princess is I played the game very close to when it originally came out. Um, I never owned, uh, so we never owned a Wii or a GameCube Mm -hmm. in our household. No. Like at at some point we, you bought a GameCube used like way out. When I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. I, I played a lot of GameCube at other friends' house. Like, I would go over to friends' house and they'd be like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to play GameCube. Like, I don't have a GameCube at home, so we're sitting down and playing GameCube games that I don't have. Yeah. Um, so all that is to say, you know, we weren't, uh, we didn't, you know, day one purchase the Wii. We didn't buy Twilight Princess when it came out. This was in a period of my life where I was not staying necessarily completely up to date with release dates and stuff for new Zelda games. Like I was aware that they were happening, but I wasn't as on top of it as I am now. Um, but we took a winter trip. Um, geez, I'm trying to remember when this was. Uh, so I, I believe the winter after this game came out, we took a trip to visit some family in Wyoming and then we got snowed into their house for like a whole week. 
uh, and they had a Wii. And so we walked over to the Blockbuster and rented a copy of Twilight Princess on the Wii. And I don't think you played this copy at all. Um, but I kind of posted up in one room of the house and played through, I want to say two thirds of the game, uh, in like two or three days time. And I, I got up to the temple of time and then we had to go home. Didn't have a Wii anymore, you know, crying shame. Um, later on in college, I ended up borrowing a friend's Wii and playing the whole thing and and beating it so um it was so the game came out in 2006 and i would have beaten it in 2008 or 9 so there really was quite a delay between when the game came out and when i actually beat it for the first time i have only ever played it on the wii or the wii u um which is to say uh because this is one of those games where you know different versions have different orientations of the game world right uh on the gamecube the world is arranged one way and then on the wii it's mirrored uh much the same way that ocarina of time's world is flipped from the regular version to master quest so um i have never played twilight princess on the gamecube layout of its map um and for that reason i've you know I like I think I mentioned this last week. I don't remember if I was just talking to you about this or if I actually mentioned it on the pod, but um, I only ever play this game, especially the HD version in hero mode, because on Twilight Princess HD's hero mode, it retains the flipped map, whereas the regular mode has the original GameCube map. Um, And so. Uh, I am playing it in hero mode, and that's more so just because I'm comfortable with this orientation of the game world um, than it is for, like, just wanting the extra difficulty or anything, which I do enjoy. But, like, mm-hmm. um, anyway, it, it would it would feel very weird to me to play this on the flipped map at this point. Um, I, I would say that I've beaten this game three times in the past, uh, and this is going to be my fourth playthrough. And it's been uh, – I forget when Twilight Princess HD came out. I think it was 2016. That sounds about. It was 2015 or 16. It was. That's. It, and it was, I, I only say that because that's the date of the copyright. Okay, that's on. The so game. there. So yeah. I mean, it was definitely pre the Switch. So it would have been right in there somewhere. And I did play this game on the Wii U when it came out. Um, and actually, at the time, played it almost entirely remotely on the gamepad in bed. I didn't set it up on the TV or anything. Um, I just streamed it to the gamepad and played it that way, which was a fine way to do it. Uh, Nothing wrong with it at all. The gamepad screen is not my favorite in the world. It's not the absolute prettiest thing that ever was, but it got the job done. Um, Currently, I am playing uh, this run through of the game, as I've mentioned several times on the Steam Deck. Um, I am emulating it uh, legally because, again, I do own a copy of the game. Um, But yeah, I really just I wanted to be able to play this run through on a portable system in bed uh but you know taking full advantage of the hd graphics and everything which the steam deck is able to do and after a ton of headache actually getting the emulator running on the steam deck um, i'm having a really great experience with it um i i don't know exactly where i would have ranked this game prior to this playthrough against other stuff it probably would have been somewhere in the middle um, if I had to guess, I, I definitely don't put it, in, you know, close to the bottom of my own personal ranking. But um, I think as we've said on the podcast before now, this game to me has always been one that had a, a lot of fun to be found. But 
other Zelda experiences in the past have kind of overshadowed it for me. And that's kind of just where I'm at with it. That's my my history with Twilight Princess. How about you, Matt? Yeah, so I have, I mean, obviously a very similar experience to you, seeing as we grew up in the same house. Um, I I did play this on the Wii in college. Um, and I, I think that I own it on GameCube. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that anymore, but I definitely played this on the Wii in college. Um, never owned a Wii U, so was uh, never able to play it, the HD version. So this is my first go around with the HD version of the game. And I'm super excited to be playing it. It actually looks better than I thought it would. So, um, enjoying that. I think like you, uh, maybe less so. Um, I am playing this on hero mode. The map orientation doesn't really bother me one way or the other because I think I've only beaten this game once, maybe twice. So like, I don't have enough of a muscle memory with the game to really have strong opinions about the map orientation as a, as a thing. But, um, yeah, I, I think we talked a lot, especially at the very beginning of the pod of like the games that we had played. Where do we how do we feel about them? And we were always talked about Twilight Princess as like our least favorite. And, you know, obviously, now that we've played some truly least favorite Zelda games, <laughs> Phantom Hourglass, <laughs> um, like I, I have a hard time seeing this be in that echelon of Zelda games. Right. Like, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with it just never really stood out in the realm of Zelda games that we grew up with, the ones that we loved, the ones that we come back to over and over again to, to dip our toes in. Right. Yeah. And, um, I'm not really sure why this, this came out at an era of my life, you know, early high school, um, slash late middle school. And also an era of your life where we were pretty into the emo, scene hard rock you <laughs> right. know and like this is definitely zelda going through its emo phase right so like i'm kind of surprised this didn't resonate with us a little bit more than it did at the time it came out but maybe it's just because we did come to it so much later um after it initially released but um no i i really don't have a lot of history with this game outside of kind of what we've talked about, which is just not really remembering being blown away by it in the way that we distinctly remember being blown away by Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Skyward I wonder, Sword. I wonder if that really does have to do a lot with the fact that we were not, we didn't have that anticipation of like, we're following the release date, we know when it's coming out, we're buying it day one, we're playing it that night. Because all the other games you were mentioning, like, Ocarina of Time, when I was eight years old, I was ready for that. I was excited for it. Dad was going to pick it up at Toys R Us after work. Couldn't wait to play it. Majora's Mask, same deal. I was all about Zelda at that time. We had an N64. I was like primed and ready for it. Um, uh, Skyward Sword, when I was in college, like I was following that. I was like, I was watching E3 trailers. I knew when it was going to come out. Mm -hmm. I wanted to buy it day one. Breath of the Wild, A Link Between Worlds, all these games, like I've been. Like, but Twilight Princess really just kind of landed in a gap, in fairness, along with Wind Waker, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, where it really just kind of slipped between the cracks of my gaming history for a bit there. And I wonder if that does have something to do with it. Um, you know, obviously, I held a lot of warm and fuzzies for Wind Waker before going into that game. Mm -hmm. I do think that is just because I 
I mean, you meshed with that art style so I much. I did, like, yeah, I did. It was it was just so new, and it was so, um, I, like, it was just, it was vibing for me in such a unique way, um, and I discovered it for myself as an adult after not knowing much about it, you know? So I do think that was just a really great overall experience, but maybe it, maybe it is just because I wasn't, we weren't in a cycle with this game. Yeah, I, you know, TIE Fighter. You know, that that may be true for your experience, but I don't think I've played any Zelda game besides Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom on release day. Like, I did not play Skyward Sword when it first released. I was in college and had to borrow my girlfriend's Wii to, uh, to go get it secondhand and play it. Um, I didn't play Wind Waker until we played it on the pod. I was too young to remember Ocarina of Time and its hype. I was also, candidly, too young to remember any of the hype around Majora's Mask. But I think specifically Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask were at such a pivotal time in my young life and getting into video games that those will always have just their own special place for me. Um, But I never, like I said, until Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, I never played a Zelda on release day. Um, so that I don't think has so much to do with my reception of this game. Um, like I wasn't even really following much of Zelda until around the time of Skyward Swords release when it was when I really started getting into things like E3 and trailers and, you know, like I I was just not super into the hype culture, uh, and like, I just was not very internet, (laughs) uh, fluent, Cause like that was my high school was when the internet was starting to get big. Right. So like it was, I just wasn't very interested or fluent in it. I was too busy doing tons of other things. And, um, so yeah, I, I think that's a totally valid thing for you and your experience, but yeah, I don't think that that was really a big thing for me. Okay. Well, maybe we'll be able to like more clearly identify where these feelings have been coming you know from as we get further into the game Uh, but i think that that's a a pretty good summation of our experience with it does that sound about right to you matt yeah i I think so so you said you're playing it on the wii u this time and you're going to be playing it mostly posted up in front of a tv can i ask why you're not interested in streaming it to your gamepad and playing it that way i hate using the gamepad i bought a pro controller okay so yeah i just don't like the gamepad okay good enough reason for me yeah did, have you been tempted to get a Steam Deck? I've been tempted to get a Steam Deck for a long time for many reasons outside of emulating Twilight Princess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just want to be able to play games uh, that I don't have access to on the Xbox, like all of the God of War games, all the Horizon games, uh, Spider-Man. <laughs> like, I mean, there's there's a million games that I would love to play on Steam Deck. Um, not that I have time to do any of that right now, uh, nor do I have eight hundred dollars to drop on a steam deck so like i said have a wedding to pay for fair enough so you know yeah priorities these are all good points matt these are all good points yeah well now that point section point five of the sacred realms rundown is out of the way let's go ahead and move on to actual part one which is the plot recap as read by matt take it away matt As twilight falls around the peaceful glade that we so often visit, our friend and mentor, Russell, speaks up for the first time in a long, unbroken, yet companionable silence. Tell me, do you ever feel a strange sadness as dusk falls? 
They say it's the only time when our world intersects with theirs, the only time we can feel the lingering regrets of the spirits who have left our world. This brief philosophical thought leads into a favor that he has to ask of us. There's a long-standing ceremony that is held once a year where the outlying towns and villages take gifts to Hyrule Castle to present to the royal family as a show of fealty. Ordon Village, our home, has been part of this custom since time out of mind, and the mayor has asked Russell to take our village's gift to the castle this year. Russell asks us to take it in his stead, his reason being that we have never left our cozy village and seen the world at large or the splendid Hyrule Castle in the surrounding castle town. He feels that it is important for us to see these things with our own eyes, and the prospect of seeing all these wonderful things, as well as the extremely slim chance to see the princess in person, is more than enough for us to agree to take on this honored task. But as dusk continues to descend, we pack up the wood that we spent all day gathering onto our trusty steed and head for home. Pretty much as soon as we get home and put Epona to bed, the rancher Fado comes calling at our treehouse, asking for help and wrangling the goats. Apparently, they're all so skittish lately that they refuse to listen to him. So we agree to help, but notice immediately that Epona is missing from her accustomed spot. We have a hunch about where she might be off to and head back toward the spring. Sure enough, our dear friend Ilya has horse-snapped our steed. But as is her way, Ilya has only taken Epona so that she can spoil her a little. With our equine friend freshly washed in the soothing waters of the spiritual spring, Ilya asks us to whistle Epona's favorite song with a piece of nearby grass. Always happy to oblige our two favorite girls, we snag some greenery and whistle up Epona's song. With a parting remark from Ilya about not working Epona too hard, we mount up and head towards the ranch to help Fado with the skittish goats. Ordon Village is cozy and lively, even at this waning hour of the evening. The villagers bustle about by the stream or between their homes and the shop, going about their daily chores and keeping the spirit of community alive. Russell and his family are by the pond, and we wave as we ride by. Russell's practicing with his blade, but stops long enough to tell us that his son Colin is working on a fishing rod so that we can go fishing together. It should be ready tomorrow morning, so we should come by the house and pick it up. The shopkeeper also seems to be arguing with her husband about some mischievous monkeys that he can't seem to keep out of the store. The mayor's house is the last one before the ranch, and he lets us know that Fado headed up to the ranch just a bit ago and encourages us to get on with the chores and get home before dark. Up to the ranch we go, and sure enough, the goats are less obedient than usual. Even with their odd stubbornness, they're pliable before the herding skills of Epona. With the goats in bed, we hop the fence of the ranch and take ourselves home with the promise of an interesting day of fishing and friends to excite us for the morning. We awake in the morning to the sounds of children hollering in our front yard. Tallow, Mallow, Beth, and Colin have come to wake us up and hang out. When we reach the group, Tallow, Mallow, and Beth are talking loudly and excitedly about the new slingshot that Beth's parents have in store. The boys are aching to give it a try, but Beth wisely refuses to let them borrow it. Colin, however, always the quiet one of the group, is hanging out with Epona, giving her some well-received pats. He tells us that his parents wouldn't let him bring the fishing rod with him, so we'll have to get it from them this morning. We head off into town to get the fishing rod and see what we can see about this slingshot. 
Once we arrive, we see the little village bustling merrily, except for the shopkeeper's husband, who is looking mournfully up at a hive of bees that have nested on his house. Mallow and Tallow's father is up on the roof of one of the rock pillars nearby and beckons for us to climb up to him and have a chat. When we get up there, he points out some unique grass nearby that we can use to whistle with and also shows us the shopkeeper's cat on the other side of the river, voraciously looking at the fish. All of this is interesting enough, but what really catches our eye is the monkey at the very far end of the river. It is jumping up and down, screeching with something wicker in its paws. We jump over to the rock nearest that end of the river and use the hawk grass to call our trusty raptor friend. We point the hawk at the monkey and let him loose. The hawk returns with the wicker bassinet, which we assume is the property of Colin's very pregnant mother. We hop down and head over to her at the river dock to return the bassinet. She's extremely grateful and we walk back to the house with her, where she gives us the fishing rod in exchange for the bassinet. We head over to where the cat is hanging out and decide to try out the new fishing rod. But as soon as we catch a little green gill, the dastardly feline jumps up and grabs it right off the hook. It dashes off and back to the shop where it belongs. A little forlorn about losing our fish, we head to the shop to see if we can get compensated for the theft and maybe check out that slingshot while we're there. The shopkeeper is all aglow about how clever her kitty is and in her good mood gives us a half full bottle of milk. The other half being in the cat's food bowl, we decide that half will do just fine as recompense for our stolen lunch. We go ahead and use the money we've been saving up to buy the slingshot while we're here and head back to the house to mess around with it for a bit. On the way, we decide to help out the beleaguered husband of the shopkeeper and shoot down that pesky beehive for him. Back in the glade by the house, we run into Russell, who tells us that he dropped off a gift for us at the house. But before we can head in to grab it, the kids are all floored by our purchase of the slingshot and demand an exhibition. They set up some targets, which we promptly destroy to everyone's mutual enjoyment. After sating their desire for elastic destruction, we head inside and find our trusty wooden sword that Russell has honed for us. Of course, this elicits the need for another demonstration of martial skill, and Tallow and Beth demand to see our moves in action on the pumpkin-headed dummy nearby. Tallow hopes to use the skills we show to chase off the monkeys that have been causing minor mischief around the town. And it seems like he'll get his wish pretty much immediately, as a very unfortunate monkey happens to appear right at that moment. Before we can stop them, the kids all run after the monkey, ready to dish out some juvenile revenge. We chase after them to try to stop them from heading too deep into the woods, but unfortunately Tallow has run helter-skelter all the way into the deep woods beyond the spiritual spring and across the bridge. Beth and Mallow couldn't keep up, and they head back to the house to wait while we go in search of the rambunctious Tallow. We follow his trail into some caves that lead into the deep woods and have to fight off some Dagubabas along the way. However, the path is blocked by a huge and thick spider web that our wooden sword can't break, so we head back to see if we can find a way forward. In the glade nearby the cave, we see a hut with a man nearby, and we approach to see if he can offer any assistance with our sticky predicament. As it turns out, this guy is a seller of lantern oil, which is weird, given he's all the way out here where no one lives or visits. Even more weirdly, he straight up gifts us a lantern free of charge and full of oil as a business tactic so that we will pay him to refill it at some point in the future. 
Just thankful to have a way forward, we head back to the cave to incinerate the spider web and press forward. The deep woods are a dangerous place full of bokoblins, keys, and dekubabas. We see no sign of tallow, but we keep pushing forward through the mob of enemies. We have to find a key to make it through a locked door, and once on the other side, we reach the deepest part of the woods, where we have never been before. A truly enormous tree fills most of the area ahead, and it seems that Bokoblins have carved a walkway leading up to the trunk. We smash our way through the assembled monsters and see that they have Tallow and a little monkey caged at the base of the trunk. We make short work of the two Bokoblin guards and smash the wooden cage to pieces to free our friend and his cellmate. While we are truly glad to see Tallow safe and sound, it seems his primary concern is making sure that we don't tell his dad about this entire incident so that he doesn't get in trouble. Promising to keep the whole misadventure to ourselves, we head back home and send the kids on their way to their parents. Russell runs up shortly after and says that he was on his way to rescue the kids after Colin ran home and told him what happened, but is pleased to see that we have already handled the situation. The next morning is the dawn of the day that we are supposed to head off to Hyrule Castle to bring the village gift to the royal family. We don't have to leave immediately, so we spend the morning herding goats with Fado and Epona. Once we finish that up, we head to the mayor's house to collect the village gift and head out on our way. Once we arrive, we're pleased to see Ilya waiting for us and are hopeful for a fond farewell from our friend. Our hopes of this are quickly and violently dashed as Ilya notices Epona's injured leg. While the injury is extremely minor, we get more than an earful, and even her father is berated into silence when he tries to jump to our defense. Ilya marches off angrily with Epona to the spiritual spring to heal the leg, and we're left to chase after her, hoping to soothe her anger. The town kids are hanging out in the glade by our house again, and while Tallow and Mallow are playing at guard duty, we convince them to let Colin and us through to the forest spring, on the condition that Tallow can borrow our wooden sword. Colin goes on ahead and manages to get into the spring with Ilya and Epona, but when we arrive shortly after, the gate is locked and Ilya refuses to let us in. Colin offers to talk her down while we sneak around through a crawl space into the spring. We reach the spring to find Ilya's temper at a simmer instead of a raging inferno. It appears that Colin's tale of how Epona actually got hurt when we were rescuing Tallow has done the trick. Things further de-escalate when Epona trots right up to us for a nuzzle, and Ilya has to begrudgingly admit that even with all the spa days she gives, Epona still loves us more. Before releasing our horse back to us fully, she makes us promise that no matter what happens, we won't do anything too far out of our league as we go to Hyrule Castle. Just come home safely, please. And of course, we're more than happy to promise this, but only to Ilya. So, we promise, and we reach for our friend and our horse, ready to get on the road. But just as we make this promise, we hear the thundering of many hooves, of heavily laden horses, and something far bigger than any horse. Out from the depths of the deep woods, two armored bokoblins riding a wild boar burst into the forest spring with weapons raised. Before we can do anything besides cry out in shock and surprise, we see Ilya get shot in the back with an arrow and feel an excruciating pain explode on the back of our skulls. Before we totally lose consciousness, we see the Bokoblins grab Ilya and Colin and haul them onto their steeds. 
As everything fades to black, the last thing we hear is a shatteringly loud horn echoing into oblivion. We awaken in the forest spring an unknown amount of time later, although it seems like a long time has passed as the shadows of twilight surround us. As soon as we can stand, we make a run towards the deep woods, hoping against the odds that we can somehow reach our friends wherever they might be. As we leave the spring, we barely register an extremely odd sight in the sky. Some kind of black hole floats high above the spring, but what it is or what it signifies, we have no clue. Unable to do anything about that right now, we keep running towards the deep woods, but barely make it past the bridge before running into another terrifying and odd thing. A black wall of unknown origin and material blocks the way forward. We cautiously approach, unsure of what it is or how to proceed, but sure that it blocks the way to our friends, and even more sure that it signifies something truly dangerous. As we approach, a gigantic black hand thrusts through the wall of darkness and engulfs our entire body, pulling us swiftly into the barrier. The far side of the barrier looks like the path towards the woods, but unlike it has ever looked before. The entire area is covered in thick twilight and shadow, and black squares rise from the ground towards the sky. We barely register this as we are pulled towards a monstrous black creature with glowing red sigils all over its body. The monster holds us in one hand as easily as we would hold a squirming fish, and we are utterly sure that we are about to meet our demise before the creature tosses us away after a bright light emanates from our hand. Searing pain registers as the primary stimulus for every fiber of our being. Our insides are roiling and burning and our skin feels like it's bursting at the seams. As we cry out with the agony, we hear our own voice begin to shift and change. And before we pass out from the pain, the sound coming out of our throats is that of a howl of an injured wolf. We awake again an undetermined amount of time later, with the feel of cold stone and the smell of damp decay. The smells of this place are oddly strong, and the sounds from all over seem to be amplified to a degree we have not experienced before. The ground is cold, but the cold is distant, as if felt through a blanket. As we groggily get to our feet, we find that our limbs move stiffly and in an unfamiliar way. We raise our head to investigate this, and in place of our hands and feet, we see the paws of a huge wolf. We try to cry out in shock, but a short, high bark escapes our muzzle as we try to scramble away from whatever nightmare this is. We feel the unmistakable chafe of an iron shackle around our forepaw. This is no nightmare, at least not the kind you can wake up from. There, on our paw, and it is a paw, is the same birthmark we have had our whole life. The faint outline of a triangle, but it seems to be glowing brightly in this odd twilight. We finally get the full context of our situation, and realize that we have somehow been transformed into a giant wolf, but that we are also in a jail cell somewhere. Seeing as there are no buildings like this in Ordon Village, we have to be somewhere else, but we have no idea where. We start digging around and doing everything we can to break free from our chain until we hear an odd giggle from the other side of the bars. As we look up, we see a small imp standing on the other side of the bars looking at us with wry amusement. 
She vaults high into the air and lands in the cell with us, exclaiming with joy that she found us. Unsure who this person is, but knowing that we've had nothing but horrible experiences recently, we immediately assume an aggressive defensive posture, with a low growl emanating from our throat. The imp sarcastically scolds us and tells us that we shouldn't be treating her that way because she's the only one that can get us out of here. With the promise of freedom and help, our interest is piqued. Despite her incredibly rude demeanor, we're interested enough to humor her and she breaks the train right off our paw. We use a small crawl space by some broken bars and escape the cell, only to have this impertinent creature land on our backs as if to ride us like a horse. Apparently, she has enough information to know where we are and how to get out of here. So we resign ourselves to this indignity and soldier ahead. We make our way through a poorly maintained and illogically laid out prison into the sewers below. This whole area is filled with the same twilight lighting and odd black squares as the woods near Ordon Village. We even see spirits of soldiers that manifest as blue flames. Using our animal senses, we can hear their terror and uncertainty at their situation. The imp keeps giving us hints that she knows what's going on, but refuses to outright tell us. So we keep push pushing forward, even fighting some shadow monsters the size of large rats. Eventually, we win our way free of the sewers with the help of our imp companion to jump to some tricky ledges in the process. We finally make it to the top of the tower and out the door to find ourselves on the ramparts of an enormous stone castle. Hyrule Castle is as grand as we ever could have dreamed, even in this twilight suffused environment. The air around is suffused with permanent thick clouds of twilight and a persistent rain that adds a dimension of desperation to the gloom in the air. All around we can see the shapes of the unnatural black beasts that call this place home. Our companion remarks how great the black cloud of twilight looks today, and we're forced to, rec to reckon that her aesthetic tastes are as bad as her sense of humor. But again, she knows the way we need to go, so we make our way towards a distant turret where she claims we will find the answers we seek. We see more, more soldier spirits here and fight some enormous twilight bird monsters, but make our way to the tower in short order. Once inside and out of the rain, we make our way to the top of the tower, where a large metal door stands slightly open, letting out the ghost of a fire that should be cozy and warm, but is only a shadow of those things in this environment. Inside, we see a tall woman with her back to the door. Her black cloak grazes the ground, and her hood shadows every detail of her face as she turns to face us. The walls of this room are adorned with the sigil of the royal family on black banners. The windows are framed with ornate metalwork, and a large bed stands opposite the roaring fire that offers little warmth in this cold, high tower. As we approach the woman, she exclaims the name of our companion as Midna and seems shocked to see her. There's some banter between these two, which indicates that they have at least some history, but most of it is lost on us besides the apparent fact that Midna has been searching for us. Midna says that we weren't exactly what she was looking for, but we'll do, whatever that means. Eventually, the woman explains exactly what has happened and how we have gotten into this situation. She tells a tale of a brutal and quick invasion by the monsters that pulled us into this Twilight Realm in the first place. 
While she and her guards stood their ground as much as possible, they were no match for the monsters and their master, who she calls the King of Twilight. She describes the short, brutal battle in the throne room, but what stands out to us is the description of the Twilight King. She describes him as a tall man with a full helm in the shape of a lizard. His armor is dragon motif and his robes are black with vibrant green. He walks with calm and deadly assurance, and when he speaks, it is only to say, it is time for you to choose, surrender or die. Oh yes, a question for all the land and people of Hyrule. And in this circumstance, she had no choice but to surrender to him and his army of twilight monsters. From there, the Twilight King covered the whole land in this twilight that we see, which is where we find ourselves now. The people of Hyrule know not what has happened, nor that they exist in this world as spirits, and they know only fear and the uncertainty that comes with living without light. And we're back. If you notice a difference in the overall sound of our audio recording from this point on, that would be because the storm got to a point uh, at which it was a little scary for us to remain outdoors. And so we have come inside to finish out the remainder of the episode. Um, sorry for the weather ruining the flow of your plot recap. It's, it's fine. You know, it was uh, there's just like a couple sentences left. So we'll we'll give everybody the uh, the, the little last tidbit here. Enjoy it. Finish her out, Matt. At the end of this tale of woe, she reveals herself, unsurprisingly at this point, to be Princess Zelda of Hyrule. With her tale finished, Zelda encourages us to make haste out of here, as the guard will soon be on its rounds. She also tells us that the Shadow Beasts have been searching far and wide for Midna, and now for us. When asked why, Midna is evasive, but we don't have time to investigate this further. We leave the princess to her prison and head back out into the rain. Once on the ramparts, Midna slyly says that a promise is a promise. I can send you back to where you first stumbled into Twilight, but are you sure you don't want to are you sure you want to go back now? Aren't you forgetting something? She cruelly takes the shape of Ilya and Colin and imitates their fear and pain when they were captured. She intimates that she knows where they are and how to rescue them, but that she will only help us if we promise to be her servant, and like a good servant, do exactly as she says. Before we can answer this ultimatum, she makes an odd gesture with her hand, and we feel our body melt away and up into the unknown. Well done, as always, Matt. This brings us to part two of the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Um, since we're doing our opening chapter a little bit different this time, I'm going to go ahead and suggest that we do the thing we have to do every now and again, which is consolidate our takes and the dungeon map into one thing together. Uh, we don't have a traditional dungeon this week, and the reason that we made that decision is because, as your plot recap um, made very clear, this is a chunky section of game where a lot of things happen. 
Yeah, no, it, we we had absolutely no time nor energy to go from the intro all the way through the Forest Temple. That would have been just way too much. Uh, so, I mean, this this section of game already clocked in for me at it an hour and 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, like, doesn't sound that long, but when you sit down and look at everything that happened it's it's, dense it's dense it's jam-packed and like look a lot of it is intro game stuff like it's not important that we spent all this time with the village kids and that we got a fishing rod and we got a slingshot and we helped uh the mom get the bassinet back i know those things are like huge story beats but it is a lot of set dressing right yeah, and yeah. and it's stuff that has to be talked about because we have to talk about the characters we have to talk about the setting we have mm-hmm. so like it's, it would have just been way too much so yes we do not have and i think we might have a couple of sections in this game uh, we're looking at revising the schedule a little bit to break it up a little bit more so we might end up with some other sections that don't have a true dungeon just because this game is very very dense yeah so how do you feel about this section of the game as an intro section of a Zelda game, because one of the things that I very clearly remember about reviews of Twilight Princess when it first released and one of the things that people kind of mention a lot um, about this game is that it's known for having what some people consider to be an overly long introductory area that like it really drags out um the opening of the game to the point where it's several hours before things really get going. And I think that like just on paper, I think that that feels right. That mm-hmm. seems right. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, given the fact that we literally had to break up what would classically be considered the introductory period of the game into two whole episodes. Right. Like yeah. this, you wouldn't really consider the introductory period of a Zelda game to be completed until your first dungeon. Right. Like Deku Shri, uh, Dragon Roost Island, uh, or not Dragon Roost Island. I think we could say the, the first time you go to the fortress. Yeah. Wind Waker. And then you got um, Majora's Mask, right? Which is like the intro section is your first three-day cycle in right. Termina, right? Yeah. So it's not a hard and fast rule. But, um, but I mean, the thing is that this game does have a similar-ish structure, right? Um, to a game like Ocarina of Time where you have an introductory thing and then you're just going from dungeon to dungeon to dungeon. Like when you look at the walkthrough as just a list of bullet points, mm-hmm. it looks like an Ocarina of Time style game, right? Sure. But I mean, we're, we're pretty far from the days of boot up the game and 20 minutes later, you're inside the, the Deku tree, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's definitely, <sighs> I don't want to come out of the gate being negative, but like this, this intro feels bloated to me. Like you don't need to herd goats twice. You don't need to do all of the little side questy things in the village. I think having the intro section with the monkeys on top of the intro section with the Bokoblins and, you know, going back and forth to the spring two different times with Ilya, like all of that, like it feels like they doubled up when they could have really streamlined this by just removing some of those things that they didn't need two of. Yeah, you basically, you start off this game by having not a day in the life of Link. You basically have two full days in the life of Link. Yeah. Um, two and a half because your first your first thing is the evening then you have a full day then you have another half day of yeah so i guess it's two yeah yeah i mean I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about this because on the one hand i do think that this is a game that really luxuriates in its characters mm-hmm. you know um like we meet 
in in the first hour and a half of this game, we have met a cast of characters that is immediately has immediately surpassed the entirety of the last game that we played. Right. Uh, many of the games that we yeah. played, like um, it, the cast of characters is very memorable. I remembered each one of these characters. I didn't necessarily remember their names because it's been 12 years since I played the game. But yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I, they're they're very memorable. Yeah, they are. And I, I think um, what this game is really trying to do is to set you up for emotional investment in these characters mm-hmm. um, <laughs> by giving you time to to get to know them and learn their personalities and learn their stories and everything. Um, and I, I do think that there is some value. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I do think that there is some value in that, uh, especially because it's not the kind of thing that Zelda tends to really go out of its way to do. I mean, Zelda does have a history of, good and interesting character development and portrayal, but it doesn't usually accomplish that in this kind of like long form setting. Yeah. I think it's interesting <laughs> to think about this intro section as a precursor to Skyward Swords intro section, which is also an intro that luxuriates in characters. It luxuriates in Zelda in Groose and Groose's minions and the teachers in uh, Russell actually. The isn't the dad's name Kukio's dad? Isn't his name Russell? Dude, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it is. Anyway, um, if it is, that's hilarious. But like these two games feel very similar in that way, in that they take time to get you invested in. He's just getting comfy. He's just getting comfy. Um, it takes time to let you develop that emotional connection that is the driving factor behind the game skyward swords driving um emotional impetus is saving zelda and so you have to be invested in who zelda is as a character and twilight princess's emotional impetus is saving Ilya and colin and to a somewhat lesser extent beth and mallow and talon beth and mallow and tallow and, and everybody else so you have to know these characters well enough to care enough about them to be invested and i think that yeah it is successful at that but i think they could have been as successful as they are with 20 percent less yeah I, I agree with that i do think it's very good at establishing the character of link as like a part of this community mm-hmm. right like we we feel very comfortable in link's role in ordona you know, um, you know, he is a he is a part of this village and he has a role there and everybody knows him. And that's nice. Like, it's nice to see those things from the character of Link that serves to that that serves to bring us closer to Link as a character. Um, and obviously, in some games, that's kind of a problem, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. we feel very detached from Link because he's the silent protagonist and um, he is just traditionally not a character with a ton of layers, but so every, every little bit kind of helps. Um, and so that is appreciated, but I agree with you. There's, there are some superfluous moments that we really could have done without. I mean, for goodness sakes, we, we end up with kind of like a trading quest that happens in this little section. I have that in my notes down here. It's like, wow, we've already completed the first trading quest of the game. Yeah. And I mean, it was like a more involved trading quest than phantom hourglass had (laughs) at all. And I mean, it was actually a very Link's awakening feeling trading quest, right? With some some similar items, right? Like fish and honeycombs and like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, 
It, 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 so, I, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on here. But I, I do think that it's – I'm willing to forgive it just a little bit because I do – I have some foreknowledge of the story of the game generally speaking. And I think that it only works. The Like the hook of this game, um, wanting to save the captured people that you grew up with, it only works if you kind of spend this time. I I, I agree. I think that it it doesn't – Especially because some of the kids are rather annoying, in my opinion. Um, really? I kind of like them all. Uh, Mallow. <laughs> you don't like Mallow? I, I didn't say I didn't like Mallow. Mallow <laughs> gives me Stewie Griffin vibes. Do you yes. get that? Yeah. 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 Mallow gives me Stewie Griffin yeah. vibes. Um, the way that they chose to vocalize Beth most of the time. Oh, yeah. Is very uncomfortable. It's semi horny and she's like 10 and it's just not I like a lot of shimmying and, and like yeah, yeah. oh like like yeah. noises that adult women in other games are making yeah towards link yeah it's uncomfortable so I, like there are some nuances that i'm like eh, i don't love but overall like i i think it's a good cast of characters. I, I actually think Russell is one of the better characters that we interact with. And he's also very unique because he's an older male role model for Link. And other than Link's uncle in A Link to the Past and maybe the blacksmith in A Link Between Worlds, not really because the blacksmith is kind of nasty to Link. Um, but like he he's a He's a he's a role model figure for Link, a father figure, basically, that I, I don't really remember very much of in the series in general. And I, yeah. I think that that is really cool. Um, I, I really like the introductory moment of this game with Link and Russell. Right. Yeah. Where um, it, like it's a big tone setting moment where they discuss like, you know, how, how you know that feeling when twilight is approaching and they're having this conversation that's really setting a tone for the entire game mm -hmm. um it's a really I, I think it's a fun moment maybe fun's not the right word yes it, it's got a lot of atmosphere to it yeah. and i really like it because zelda games typically don't begin this way especially the 3d zelda games right i mean um they really normally begin with some wake up sequence this is the only game link is not woken up in the beginning. That yeah, I yeah, no, 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 that's fair. Um, but there's no, like, there's no Wind Waker-style legend, like, animated intro. Lots mm -hmm. of Zelda games have that. Um, you know, there's no beginning, like, Ocarina of Time, where it's, like, you have a narrator who's kind of, like, explaining the intro to you, and then you go and you meet up with Link after a little cutscene or whatever. I, I think it's just, it's, it's kind of an intimate little scene, um, and it's a very intentional way of starting this game i think mm -hmm. that this game is is big about mood mm -hmm. um and it's it's big about um community and family and closeness in a way that most zelda games aren't like yeah. um wind waker gets this because you have your grandma and your sister and so like and you're on your small island and everybody knows you and this kind of has the same small close-knit community vibes that um outside island has just in a different because it's not on the ocean in a different kind of way but you get it, it's very much leaning into that um aspect of link's life and that being the driving factor for the uh for link's investment in the adventure sure yeah no i, I definitely agree so i think it's very interesting because 
we don't begin this game on a very bright and cheery mm. note it's, at all. It's like it's it's, it's moody. It's, it's melancholy. Not, yeah, I think melancholy is a, is a good word. Is a good way to put it. And I think that th- that is a that is a mood that the game continually brings you back around towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll we'll talk about that a lot more later. The I mean, there are cheery sections to be had in this early area. Absolutely. I, in, in some ways, it feels very similar to Kokiri Forest from Ocarina of Time, right? Um, not just because, you know, you're spending most of your time in learning, forest. <laughs> well, yeah, in a forest, but also like learning tips and tricks and tutorials by like the denizens of the town that you live in. Right. So they're similar in that way, but just like the arrangement of the spaces feels reminiscent of each other. Right. Um, so that, that in some ways is kind of comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. I think that what twilight princess is I think maybe what they aimed to make Twilight Princess is Ocarina of Time able to be fully realized with higher fidelity graphics and with more art direction and like with a with a slightly bigger world like they wanted to do Ocarina of Time but more mm-hmm. I think is maybe the I get the feeling that that's the approach that was being followed here and for sure and I think that. I have a hunch that throughout our time with this game, we're going to find ways in which that is a good thing and ways in which that's actually doing the game somewhat of a disservice. But I do think that there are some parallels in the intro that are, it's kind of, it's honestly at times this intro section feels like Ocarina of Times, but in the minor key, right? Yeah. And also trying to go for a more adult feeling game. Um, I think they were also simultaneously to trying to recapture some of Ocarina of Time. They were trying to rebut the Wind Waker backlash that was very prominent at this time, going in this more realistic art style away from the cell shading, going from a more uh, major key, happy, feely uh, style of game to a more mature in quotations yeah. adult in quotations feeling I, th- I think it's a matter of record that the art style of this game and the pivot that it took was a direct response to a lot of the sentiment around wind waker we've For talked sure. we've talked about this a lot um but now that we're actually in this game uh i gotta ask you matt how do you feel about the art style of twilight princess so what one of my first notes was the the hd version actually looks pretty good Especially for a game that is old enough to drink in the UK. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is an old game now. Yeah. And it looks good. Like, I, I don't think it looks phenomenal, but I think it looks good. And um, I think the textures are generally pretty good. You lose some of it with things like grass or, you know, some of the the trees. But, like, overall, I think the facial animation, the way the characters move, especially in cutscenes. Uh, flows well looks natural um it loses some of the natural flow and feeling when you're actually in game some of the characters can look a little bit stiff um i think the horse movement of epona is not super great and it feels clunky like the control scheme of the horse feels clunky i don't really like it yeah i I actually i want to come back to controls in a little bit here but let's but let's talk let's keep talking aesthetic first yeah so i and the aesthetic is, I think I said, it's all been pretty good. Um, I 
the muted tones, the sepia, it, it feels like the whole thing has a sepia filter. Sure. For most of the time. Yeah. Especially whenever you're in Twilight Realm. It's, it's just straight sepia. But even just kind of like blanket generally, I kind of get that. Yeah. You know, similar to the way that it's like you're watching The Matrix and it's like this feels green or you're watching yeah. Breaking Bad and it's like this feels, feels orange. Yeah. You know, like yes. similar thing. Yeah. yeah. It feels it feels that way. And that's just very odd choice, especially for a game like Zelda, which really luxuriates in color and in brightness and in um, in a large range of shades. And so it's kind of odd that they chose to kind of overlay this with that kind of sepia yellow tan color. Uh, coffee filter however you want to whatever you want to call it right yes um yeah no i i definitely agree i think that there's a few different things going on here one let's just talk about the the models of the characters and the styling of the world um i do think that in some ways it does feel just like a higher fidelity version of what was maybe intended to be accomplished with ocarina of time i think the result is that this is Maybe the most Renfair feeling of any Zelda game. It feels very Renfair, especially uh, the cutscene in Hyrule Castletown in Zelda's flashback. Right. Every single one of those characters, I swear I've seen at the uh, DFW Renfair. Yeah, I mean, we have like a very Baroque feeling Hyrule here, mm-hmm. and it's uh, bordering on steampunk, but not, but not quite there yet. It's, it's yeah. not it's not quite there, but it definitely is like very big, what we would consider to be highly traditional, big fantasy vibes right and i think that that is one thing that i looking back on this game tend to think of its art style and art direction as a little bit unremarkable Mm -hmm. just because at times it can feel very generic fantasy yeah um and in my first hour and a half with the game i found that to be the case at times but was at times also pleasantly surprised by moments where you do see flashes of that very singular art direction that Zelda games are known for, um, which I really did appreciate specifically anything pertaining to the twilight. Yeah. Right. The twilight. Yeah. Were the, great. Yeah. Um, the Zant and the design of his character freaking phenomenal. Zant's model is insane. And the, the stylization of his helmet, that's kind of iguana with the high top and the, the jutting mm, mandibles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got very zoni um, motif yeah. on his armor and his shoes are straight yeah. up dragon head Island and so I dragon. Yeah, and like, so, so we see a few, we see a few elements of Twily, not necessarily architecture, but like we see a few twilight portals and we see the entrance to the twilight realm and we see, you know, glowing designs on the rocks of the spirit spring or whatever. And it's like, I, I understand why people seeing the early trailers for Tears of the Kingdom were thinking to themselves like, oh, we're calling back to the Twilight, Twilight Princess here yeah. um, because they do feel similar in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, so I, I think it's a bit of a give and take. Like, I do think that there is a valid criticism here that this art style and the art direction of its world is not as singularly distinctive as Zelda can sometimes do. Um, I mean – I know that you don't mesh as much with the art style of Wind Waker as mm-hmm. I do and sure. as a lot of people do. But do you think it's it's at least fair to say that – because like I think the, the commonly accepted wisdom now is that like Wind Waker was unfairly maligned for its time and it was the game that actually had the more 
the the superior artistic direction, right? Compared to Twilight Princess, I would say that it, it was definitely more unique and it stands out more. Um, Twilight Princess, do you feel like it is more resilient to time? Do you feel like it stands the test of time better than Twilight Princesses? I think if version. that's if that's an art style that you like and enjoy, yes, absolutely. Um, and even for me, where it's not my favorite, I would say that Wind Waker is more does stand out to me more, whereas Twilight Princess feels very. Oh, this was a this was a late two thousands fantasy game. Like that, right. that's that's how Twilight Princess feels to me. It doesn't. I don't look at the art style of Twilight Princess and think. Zelda game. Yeah. Uh, like if I, I mean, obviously I think Zelda game cause I've played it before, but other than that, I don't look at the art style in general, the characters, the models, the, the shading, the environments and, and say that is classically a Zelda game or that is absolutely, you know, a Zelda experience. So I think for that reason, y- yes, I would say wind waker stands, stands the test of time to yep. be more unique and more standout. Yeah. Now, I will say, I think that this game manages to convey a mood just as successfully as Wind Waker does, mm-hmm. and that's less to do with the visual direction than it is to do with the game's music, which oh, is, oh my gosh, which is so freaking good. so good. That's the very first note that I have is um and I actually texted you this when I booted up the game. I let the intro play like three times in a row, just listening to that intro music, the choral music that happens, the swelling, the the instrumentation, and then the end of that intro music where the wolf house synchronizes with the choral swell. I love that. I love it. Oh my gosh. It harmonizes. I love, I love this intro. I love this intro cutscene so much. And again, going back to like Ocarina of Time, but more, this is the same thing as Ocarina of Time, right? It's the same intro as Ocarina of Time in a minor key with a huge hook at the very end, right? Um, I, I, like, I, I agree with you. The, that, that moment specifically that you're talking about. Incredible. Yes. Yes, it is so good. But the music all throughout this intro section is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's very, very good. Ordon Village theme is great. Um, the uh, subtle Epona's song theme that plays every time you have a conversation in the spring. Yeah. Um, even the music that plays when you're going into the deep woods. Uh, I mean, all of it is just really good. Yeah. And the nice thing is none of those tracks that you just mentioned, with the exception of Epona's song, are uh, reprises of mm-hmm. any previous track. Like everything that we've heard so far is bespoke to Twilight Princess, which is really great. I mean, look, I love um, I love Zelda games tastefully reusing older tracks. Yeah. I think that that's a really fun treat. But I do think that for a Zelda soundtrack to be able to be considered great, it has to be three quarters of the time. Original. Original. It's yeah. got to be pioneering. And they have to be good originals. Yes, yeah, good original. They've got to be pioneering its own thing. Mm-hmm. And in my memory, Twilight Princess does that. And that's borne out in the first hour and a half of, of my gameplay here for sure. But we do have, like, we've got a bunch of callbacks. We get a Hyrule Castle theme callback in the cutscene. Bum, 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 bum. Right. Like, we, yeah, we get great. that. You know, we get Zelda's lullaby. We get those things that you sort of expect to see in a Zelda game. But we do get a lot of new 
as well, which mm-hmm. um, which is really great. And, and and the music has such a particular again, we keep talking about minor keys like the, like the music does have a very melancholy feel to it throughout most of this section of the game. Um, daytime in Ordon Village, not as much. That feels sure. a bit more homey. That feels and, more Kokiri Village. And yeah, Um no, I, all of that is really true. I, I So I want to shift to character models and expressions for a second because I think we talked about, you know, overall aesthetic, but I want to specifically talk about like facial animation and, and emotional expression. Yeah. Um, I think that my, my initial impression of this game for the first 30 minutes or so is that they were really not doing much facial expression. Link has just a standard kind of, smirk smile for 90% of this intro section um, until he starts getting like yelled at by Ilya. And then he gets all, you know, appropriately chastised and um, looking a certain kind of way. But for most of the conversations that link is having and you see his face, it's just a neutral smile or um, a neutral uh, concentration and not very much expression at all out of Link specifically, um, which I found kind of odd, especially given that Wind Waker was the immediate pre- uh, predecessor to this game, where Link was arguably the most. Yeah, um, where everyone was very expressive. Yeah, in Wind Waker. and and I, I find that odd that Link was so non-expressive at the beginning of this game, and then you have characters like. Tallow, Mallow, Beth, and Colin, who are all very, very expressive. And they all have um, their their vocal lines are following with their expression. They're jumping. They're, whoa, there's excitement. There's shock. There's uh, embarrassment. Like yeah. all of these things yeah. you get from all of them. But Link is just a very neutral kind of deadpan character, which I thought was odd. What, what did you think? About I, that? I think that the facial expressions, everything you're saying is definitely true. I think that there are some fun moments of expression in body language between characters. Um, specifically, I'm thinking of the moment when like Ilya is scolding Link and her father at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they, they have that moment where they're standing next to each other. And then, and then they, they kind of peek, they kind of yeah, peek one eye. Like, yeah, that was good. Yeah, I like they're, that. They're like equally getting told off in that moment. <laughs> right. Um, I think that a lot of the ways a lot of Midna's movement and body language and a lot of her expressions feel very alive. Yeah. And I feel like they used 90% of their animation budget on Midna and then whatever was left, they kind of spread around. Can we talk about Midna for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Midna. So we, we have gotten to spend a good amount of time with our companion character already just mm-hmm. in this first hour and a half of the game. And we have mentioned We've talked a lot about companion characters in these games throughout the 10 seasons that we've been doing this. And every single time that we do that, I feel like Midna's name always crops up in that discussion is like, we remember Midna being really great. Yes. Do you feel like that was borne out in this introductory section of the game, meeting her for the first time and spending some time with her? Midna has a lot of personality. Um, there is no doubt about that. Like out of the gate, she has more personality than any character in Phantom Hourglass or most characters in what like she has so much personality. Um, (laughs) I think she has a Tetra problem, which is she comes across initially as like, I kind of hate you. And I mean, I know because I've played this game that that is short lived. Like she, I think by the time we get through the first dungeon, 
like we're like Midna's kind of softening and you kind of get to know her more and she becomes a different feeling character. But especially in this first section of game, she is there's a superiority that, yeah, that she has. She is acerbic, she's rude, she's cruel. She taunts Link, she taunts Zelda, she and like knowing what we know about the character, we know where that's all coming from and it's coming from a place of trauma. So like sure, but right out of this gate, they do not do anything to endear Midna to you. They like it's almost like they want you to dislike her and then build her up from that point, which is an odd thing. I guess they kind of did that with Tattle in a certain way as well. I think that that's a fair comparison to draw. I I will say that I preferred this approach to a companion character much more than just having a completely passive and absolutely uninvolved. I mean, like, because the thing is, you know, you're saying that we have a Tetra problem and, uh, I, I see where you're drawing that comparison. I see the line between those two things. But the thing is that Tetra, uh, we had far less time where we were interacting with Tetra. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were getting snippets of her character in between things that we were doing. But we're spending the entire game with Midna, basically, right? right? And so— Well, I was saying Tetra probably just did this. No, yeah, I know. Exa- yeah. Exactly. But I, I do think that there is—it does create an inherent difference, right? Because— this in and of itself is not a problem for me, knowing that this is our companion character and for sure. knowing that we have the promise of like development of these things. Absolutely. Know? No, totally. Like this is not a problem for me. It's just if this were my first time ever playing this game and we were playing and I was playing it in this format where I played just this section of game and stopped and then picked it up again in a couple of days, I would approach my next section of game going, God, I really hope I get to smack Midna in the face. Like you know, something like that. And, um, it's just kind of interesting. Now, if I were to play this game the way that I played it when I was in high school slash college, whenever I played it for the first time, um, and I played like the first four hours uninterrupted, it's very different, right? Like it, it all depends, I think on how much time you're spending in one sitting where the break is. And, um, I think that influences your opinion on Midna right out of the gate more than anything else. So. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. How do you feel about, um, how do you feel about her, uh, the, the design of her character? I, I have always really liked the design of Midna. I thought it was, um, they were, it felt like they were going for mischievous imp. Yeah. Both in personality and in design. And they nailed it. Like that yeah. is really on brand. Um, for this character, she, she looks like she talks and she talks like she looks and like, that's really cool to see those things mesh together. Yeah, definitely. It's so weird because I think we, we get several glimpses of the Twily civilization in this opening section. We get, we, we see Zant, we see the twilight monsters. We see some of the stupid garbage munchkins that are in the sewer. Um, those things yeah i know and uh then we see midna right and midna is unique in that there's animation to her personality like she is uh she is emotive she is 
you can tell that there's maybe some like passion there, right? She's also the only one that has eyes or a face. Right. That's the thing. Like every other member of the Twilight that we've seen up until this point, um, and and for this whole chapter, is it's very impersonal. It, mm-hmm. it feels like you're looking at at um you know, they feel like gargoyles at, to me. Yeah, at living statues, basically. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that that is an interesting. There's an interesting juxtaposition um, within a kind of character there. So we'll we'll see how that develops. I don't have a great recollection of whether or not there's any members of the Twilight that kind of break that rule, other than Midna. As we go further into this, oh, there's one. Well, unfortunately, there's one. Well, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Um, but regardless, I, I thought that it was I, I thought that it was a great direction. I think that, um, I, you know, cut scenes with Midna are entertaining. And that's what yeah. you, that's what you want. You yeah, know, that's what you need. Um, let's go back to our discussion about mechanics real quick, especially movement, uh, because one of the things that we were saying a lot when we were playing Wind Waker was um, I had this recollection of Wind Waker having this beautiful, buttery, smooth movement system. And one of the things that I recalled liking less about Twilight Princess was that the movement can feel a little not necessarily janky, but definitely not quite as fluid as it does in the Wind Waker. I personally found that to be 85 percent the case. When I was playing this game, I think when you're just walking around as Link, mm-hmm. it's fine. You know, mm-hmm. it feels great. But there are lots of times when I think movement and actions feel a little clunky. You mentioned opponent specifically, and I agree with that. I don't think the horse controls are are really good I think at all. Horrible. Yeah, the horse controls are not good in this game. Um, Wolf Link controls, I, I don't like. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think that Wolf Link feels particularly good. Um, the lunge distance for attacks, jumps and everything else is so. It's hard to feel out like it yeah. does not feel right. Um, I think Wolf Link running and jumping is fine, but anything that has to do with attacking or I mean, really anything that has to do with combat feels horrible. Yeah. Um, and especially in that sewer section that we were just talking about with those stupid Twilight goblin munchkins. You want to know something embarrassing, Lyndon? Oh, did you die to those? Four times. I, I died once to those things because they, so in hero mode, you e- lose one, one heart, heart each time they hit each you. Each time they hit you, you only have three hearts. There's no way to regen hearts as Wolf Link. Nope. Even impossible. If you, even if you saved your milk. You can't drink it because you're Wolf nope. Link. Yep. So, um, yes. And big problem. And there's no clear feeling for like where they can attack you from because mm-hmm. sometimes they're like below you and you're up on a ledge, but they can jump up and kind of get you. And you, like you don't, it, it it's not a very fluid feeling combat space no. is, is the issue. Well, and like I died most of the time because either I fell in the water and then got hit by three of them at the same time. And all th- and all three of them did one heart of damage, so I died. Yeah. Or I was trying to Z-target them, but instead I was Z-targeting the stupid chains. Oh, yeah. Like, literally could not. That killed me twice. Yeah. Was I was trying to Z-target and just kept hitting one chain and then going to the other chain and then back. Yeah. And wouldn't Z-target the <laughs> trash goblin. Yeah. And I was so angry. Like mm-hmm. made me so mad. Yeah. Uh, I died three times in this intro section. I died five I died, total. I died once to these 
goblin what are we calling them the twilight goblin trash munchkins trash i just call them trash goblins okay cool trash goblins uh in the sewer (laughs) um the second time i i got through the sewer and back to ordon and because you went further than i did oh that's fair okay so i I, I stopped when i got to ordon so i guess i only died once in the first section so i thought we were playing up until about 20 or 30 minutes past matt stopped playing so um anyway we we had a miscommunication so i'm not going to mention the third time that i died i will say the second time that i died it's because i got so midna warps you away you land back in ordon right and i had one heart left from fighting the trash goblins (laughs) and i you got hit by the hawk didn't you uh, well, that was the third time I died. Oh, okay. But the second time that I died was I had a choice that I had to make. Oh, no. Do I want to play the next 30 minutes of game with the beeping final heart sound happening? No, the answer is no. Or do I want to just go take a hit, and get a game over, and just go back to three hearts and not have to freaking deal with that? I would I would 1,000% so suicide. I, and so I just kind of like sidled up to a Bokoblin and allowed and myself said, to get clocked in the face hit me daddy yeah and uh yeah it was totally worth it so. thank you sir may i have another <laughs> yeah exactly so uh anyway all, all that is to say um yes definitely definitely died in here and then and, and there was some element of difficulty how do you feel about hero mode in this game so before i talk about hero mode so i died five total times four yeah. of them were to the stupid trash goblins right for reasons that i just specified the fifth time i died was to the stupid birds Oh, yeah. But it was because I went to do a jump attack on the second one and it carried me through him and off a ledge. And by going off the ledge, Lyndon, you lose two full hearts. What? If you fall off a ledge, you you lose two full hearts. That feels excessive. I died because of it. Yikes. That was my fifth time dying. Yikes. So in summary, my thoughts on hero mode is... I really like it for human link. Wolf link is going to be an excruciatingly punishing experience. It's just so tough because like you said, wolf link combat and movement is not great. Uh, I think, I think the concept of being wolf link is cool. Sure. I I think that there's something neat there. I think it's cool enough. I, I, not my favorite. Well, it's a gimmick is the thing. It's like, and it's kind of this game's whole gimmick. When you think about it, 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 you know, it is absolutely this game's whole gimmick. And which is interesting to me because it's less, it's less foundational to the entirety of the game than some Zelda gimmicks are. Like, I know that you return to being Wolf Link a lot throughout this entire game, but it's not, it's still not as ever present as sailing in the Wind Waker or using a touch screen on the DS in Phantom Hourglass or using or motion controls on in, Sky, yeah, yeah. Skyward Sword, right? Sure. Like, it's not, it's not as core to the base identity of the game. It's, to the narrative identity of the game, yes, it is. Um, but just to the, to the functional identity of the game, I guess it's not nearly as core, um, which is interesting. But I, I do think, I don't know, it's it's fun being Wolf Link just from a narrative standpoint. But my recollection of Wolf Link sections has them firmly in the same camp as like Silent Realms in Skyward Sword, yeah. right? L- less than less than 80% fun which is maybe not fair because you do have a lot more agency as wolf link 
than you do in the silent realms, right? Like Wolf Link has his own set of attacks and you are able to fight against enemies and you have a whole move set. And, and you get more abilities as you yeah, go. And, there, and, and it's not like we're talking about an insta fail situation. Sure. As, as Wolf Link. But, but, but what I remember about Wolf Link sections is, you know, this bad combat and movement um, heavily relying on the Midna... L targeting to jump to places, which actually I didn't hate that. That's fine. No, I don't mind that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but I also remember the light bugs. I don't remember liking the light bugs. Well, let's okay. Which yes. that's yes. a that's a conversation yeah. for a different time. I yeah. don't don't want to get into that now. Yeah. Because that's purely speculative at this point because we haven't played it. But um no, I, I I agree with your assertion that this is a weirdly non- game foundation level gimmick but we spent half of this time in this early chunk as human link and half of it as i would wolf say link, a third so. as wolf link i'd say you probably spend the first hour as human and the half hour is well maybe that maybe that back third just felt like a half <laughs> that's yeah possible. that's what wolf link will do to you but you you spend a lot of time as wolf link yes, and, and like chunk. spoilers we're going to spend the entire front half of the next section as, as Wolf, Wolf Link. Link. Like, we're not going to be Human Link again for a while. So yeah. um, it's one of those things where to, for you to spend that much time mandatorily in that form, it has to be – it has to land. It has to really land. It has to feel good. And I am not sure that it is. Mm. I, I, I would actually say that it's, it's not. Um, at for the sure, moment. I, I, don't, I would I would agree with you. I don't think it completely justifies its existence just from like a f- pure fun to play standpoint. I think especially on hero mode, like I think hero mode has a lot to do with that because there is no mechanic for recovering hearts at all. And when you combine that with bad feeling combat, hard hitting enemies, like you're just you're you're kind of in a weird no win situation um, where every mistake is incredibly punishing and permanently lasting until you can become human link again. And the thing is I like hero mode as a concept. I mean, I've, I've gone on, I've gone on record on the pod before now is saying that when I have a choice between the two things, I generally choose to play in hero mode in Zelda games these days. And I think that Twilight Princess has a good approach to it, right? I think um, it's nice because you have to be more strategic about things like potions and milk. And it's like, oh, I have two servings of milk, and so I have to kind of manage that, right? Like, do I want to have two individual servings of three heart restoration, or do I want to have one red potion, which gets me four or five or six or whatever? Like, you know, yeah. The, the, these things are fun for me to manage, and I do appreciate just an intrinsic extra level of difficulty because I've played a lot of Zelda, and I like extra challenge. I do. You need something um, to get you over the edge. Yeah, it's for like sure. A, never mind, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, don't say that. So, um, yeah, yeah. Don't say that. So, um, but like I, I, I do, and I enjoy Twilight Princess's take on hero mode. And the thing is, even as Wolf Link, there's a thing that most Zelda games that have a hero mode have, which is that the first two-ish dungeon areas are typically just really hard because as long as you only have three to four hearts, it's just tough. You yeah. know, yep. once you start accumulating more hearts, you know, then it really it like the difficulty um, really ramps down a whole lot. But mm-hmm. um, but yes, it was especially as Wolf Link, it was kind of it, it was a pain. So talking say. about all of that, I want to talk specifically about two sections and 
um, I want to talk about Deep Woods, and I want to talk about how you felt about the jail and Hyrule Castle section. Like, we talked a lot about the mechanics of Wolf Link, but now let's talk about our pseudo-dungeons that we sort of kind of have. Um, how, how do you feel about your tracking tallow through the Deep Woods experience? I am, I'm fine with it. Um, it didn't feel like filler to me. I felt like, I felt like it was entertaining enough to justify the 20 ish minutes that it took for me to clear it out. Um, I, I did, you know, I appreciated some of the urgency that was baked into it just because we had already met the characters. Right. And so we already had a little bit of emotional investment in them. And so, bringing that into the situation i do, i do think elevates it just a little bit um there's nothing that happens mechanically in here that is interesting in any way interesting in any way right like the combat is rudimentary um you know you're facing trash enemies pretty much there's no puzzle solving to speak of uh, basically you're just kind of it's intro to combat yeah it's intro to combat and you're you're just kind of wandering this space i would call it a wasted use of space if i didn't know that it was going to serve a dual purpose it's just like four we come here like four or five yeah, times yeah yeah in like an upcoming section sure but, but i like it well enough for what it is it's a uh it is a good it is a good introduction to combat with an actual enemy in this game. Yeah. Do I think it could have maybe taken five ish minutes, 10 minutes less than it did? Sure. Um, it is broken up fairly nicely. Like you have the intro area and then you go meet lantern guy. You get your lantern, you go into the dark tunnel, you know, or maybe I'm getting those things out of order, but like, that's that's right. But anyway, um, so I, you know, I do think that there are like steps to this thing that are kind of fun and you meet some fun characters, mm-hmm. uh, while the you're the parrot that runs the potion yeah, shop, the parrot that runs the potion shop, right? Like you, you do meet some fun people while you're doing this. So it didn't bother me. I mean, yeah. how'd you feel about it? Yes. And no. And just, okay. yes. Cool. Agree. Uh, Hy- Hyrule castle. Um, <sighs> Oh, that's her TV. Yeah. Um, it felt to me like they took what was supposed to be a stealth section of game and made it not a stealth section of game. Um, because like this feels very much like the wind waker, um, fortress of doom or whatever it's called, uh, where you're supposed to infiltrate or in this case, escape from an area. And I actually think this might have served better as a stealth section than what it was. Um, mostly because I think wolf link combat sucks, which we just spent extensive amounts of time talking about. So it it was aggressively fine. It is, serves as a very good introduction to wolf link mechanics specifically the utilizing midna to jump to places rapidly like that works really well um as an intro to wolf link combat it works well but just again serves to reiterate how bad that is um and i think the storytelling mechanic of zelda's um tale that she tells you is good um, I actually think it's really cool that the denizens of Hyrule manifest as spirits and that you can talk to them as Wolf Link. I actually have always thought that was a really neat addition. Um, it helps the world feel populated, but um, 
haunted, which is definitely what they were going for, I think. So, um, like, overall, I would say it was fine, but in a rare turn of events and something that I don't think I've ever said, nor will probably ever say again, might have been better served as a pseudo-stealth mission. Yeah, I I get where you're coming from with that. I think that I agree. Um, I feel a little bad for saying that after all the shit we gave Temple of the Ocean King over the last, you know. Yeah, but we also had to do it a dozen times. I know, I know, I know, I know. But um, anyway, I I kind of agree with what you're saying. I think that this Hyrule Castle section is fun. I like the concept of you as a character traversing the rooftops of Hyrule Castle. Yes, that was awesome. I think narratively that's really cool. I think that the, the, the power that was available when they made this game makes it so that it doesn't communicate maybe as grand as they want it to. It still feels to me like a bunch of video game corridors. So that's interesting because I was feeling kind of the opposite. Once I got onto the roof of Hyrule castle, when I looked out and I was just seeing turrets and then just like, sky i was like this is is this the biggest version of hyrule castle we've ever seen maybe it's maybe it's just because when you're in the twilight realm everything feels so claustrophobic and you don't get a sense of scale of like the world you know um but it it did feel it just felt to me more like it it felt less like here's a structure that makes sense and i'm traversing it and it felt a little bit more like hey where I'm a video game developer drawing out a path on a, you know, a piece of graph paper and here's point a, and you have like a few corners and then you get to point B, right? Sure. Like it, That's it, fair. it felt a little bit that way. I do like the design of Hyrule castle in this game. I think that one of the things that's really interesting is that in some ways this game feels like, it shares a lot of DNA with the way that things are portrayed in Breath of the Wild. I was thinking the same thing. Um, this version of Hyrule Castle, like obviously if you look at the actual map, Twilight Princess's map actually has more wild deviations from it does it from, from weird, most traditional Hyrule. Some weird it, shit. It, some, so a lot of shit is in weird places in Twilight Princess. But overall, I do think that it, in some ways it does feel like Oh, this could be the high rule of Breath of the Wild tens of thousands of years ago or whatever. Well, right? the like castle that. looks huge in the flashback sequence with Zelda. Right. It looks massive. Yeah. And I, I get where you're coming from on the it didn't feel as grand when you're on the rooftops. You also have to remember you're playing on a Steam Deck. When I was playing this on my 55 inch screen TV, like I got out there and I was like, this is a big. I would say that's fair, but. Like scale in video games has never really been hampered by me playing them on a portable system. Like that's fair. I, like I'm appreciating the scale of Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom just as much on the Switch handheld as I am I think on the that TV. Has to right? do with traversal versus visual cue. I don't know. Your experience is your experience. I'm not telling you you're wrong. Um, I I definitely felt like it was a large large castle space once i got out onto the roof the interior the sewers the jail everything i sat there and i was like this is the most illogically laid out and poorly maintained castle jail i've ever seen in my life it's done yeah Yeah. um but uh, i I do agree with you that the path you take to get to zelda feels very much like someone drew it on a piece of graph paper with point a c a a b c and d and end like that Absolutely true. But just visual the visual cue of when I got out there, got on the roof and like 
panned around and you could see the twilight birds flying around in the distance. You couldn't, you could see like some turrets and towers and then like a lot of empty space and like off in the distance kind of castle town, uh, silhouette. I was like, yeah. big, big space. I so. think there's a really neat thing that this game does where we're seeing the main spaces of the game at their most imperiled from the get go. Before we see them when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, we, our main introduction to Hyrule proper is when it is consumed by Twilight. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really smart decision that actually, that creates a lot of tension going into the rest of the game. It starts you at a high level, which is cool. Um, like the stakes are very clear mm-hmm. here, you know? Um, and especially as you go further in, you find out what is causing the Twilight and how to fix it. Um, I, I just think that that was a really good decision. I think that this game's story, once the story actually starts, like once, once you as Link, like, like once Ilya gets kidnapped and you follow them and you come up against that wall of Twilight, you know, mm-hmm. from that moment on, like, cause that's when the game and the story really start. It, it hits the ground running. Yeah. Like it's the tension is ratcheted way up. It's high energy. It's telling a story that has a lot of stakes. I really appreciate that about it. And it's interesting because it's almost the opposite of what Ocarina of Time did, where you have where you're trying to prevent the stakes out of the gate, right? Like until you don't. Yeah, until you fail and <laughs> cause the stakes. Um it, but Skyward Sword has this as well, where the stakes and the tension is ratcheted up right at the beginning. So these two uh, really completely different modes of storytelling and stake setting and, and tension um, building is very interesting and used to great effect in both instances. And uh, it's really cool to see Nintendo hit both of these gears and do it successfully. Because I totally agree. I think that this is a really great intro of everything is totally effed up. How are we going to fix this instead of how do I prevent things from getting effed up? Oh, they got effed up anyway. Now I have to go fix it. Like, yeah, yeah. no, that's totally fair. Do we have any other major topic that we want to tackle in section two before we move on to getting into stuff like Z targeting and probably won't have too many bloopy trails, but that kind of thing. Mm, Let me look at my newts. Hmm. Ooh, going back to control schemes, I miss sprint and fast crawl. Like being able to move more quickly, especially in the tunnel crawl section into the spirit spring. Definitely miss that. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. I, I definitely think this game is interesting because in some ways it actually feels Skyward Swordy in a lot of ways just because you, it's like a similarly aged Link and the game's you know, they, they're not separated by all that much time. Sure. You know, and so, yes, not having a sprint is a little jarring. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. Um, the controls, I think, are great. I think they're fine. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically about the link controls here. Yes. Um, I mean, they work just as well here for every for all the same reasons that they work in Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker, Majora's Mask, right? Z targeting, L targeting, whatever you want to call it. It's all great. You know, this is a proven system. Yep. Um, so that all works really well. Um, the slingshot is is fine. I will say that I really wish that I had gyro controls set up on my emulator. I don't. And so I'm just using sticks, which feels a little awkward to me, but I still hate gyro controls for some reason. Yeah. 
maybe because I'm trying to do stick and gyro at the same time and they're like throwing each other off. That's yeah. probably why. Yeah. Um, I think just like a couple other points that I want to briefly bring up is um, going back to Link's expressions and, and or lack thereof. Um, interestingly, I did notice when he's riding up to Ilya and the mayor, Ilya comes and greets him on the road and you can actually see his mouth moving like he's talking to her. Um which was really cool. I, yeah. I don't know that you see that very often in Zelda. I, you see it in Skyward Sword when he starts talking to Headmaster Gaipora. Yeah. Um, but like, I think that's the only other instance I can think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was neat. Um, there was there was one other one I saw that I wanted to bring up. It's so to me. So it's nice to me that we meet Zelda as early in this game as we do. Yes. How do you feel about this portrayal of Zelda so far? Yeah, I actually really like this Zelda. She feels like a character with agency and a character with a self-assuredness. She's a ruler like she is. She is the princess of Hyrule and she is standing in her throne room with her guards with a sword. She's not standing there cowering behind a throne. She has a sword and she is ready to fight, Um, but she's put in an impossible situation and is forced to choose to save the lives of everyone in her kingdom and hope that the situation can be rectified or let them all die. Like it's yeah. like she's I, I really like this Zelda. Um I think she's a strong character. She's not warm like Skyward Sword Zelda. She's she's even less so than Ocarina of Time Zelda, who I wouldn't think was a really warm feeling yeah. character anyway. It's, but like she's it's so funny because I really do think in Zelda games you either have familiarity with Zelda or with a different female character, mm-hmm. but not both. Yes. You never have a level of familiarity with both, you know? Right. Um, like in, uh, yeah, uh, Wind Waker, yes, you like you have familiarity with Tetra, but you don't really have that with Zelda in Ocarina of Time. Right. Right. Uh, you have a lot of familiarity with the Zelda of Skyward Sword, but you're not exactly on friendly terms with the Zelda of Twilight Princess. Right. Mm-hmm. But you are with Ilya, you know? Yeah. And so it's 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 interesting. I, you know, um, I'm not sure if I necessarily prefer it one way over the other. I kind of like that the nature of Zelda and Link's interpersonal relationship is different, is different, yeah. you know, depending on the game. Um because so. it would be kind of sucky if every game was just about how Link and Zelda met and like got together. Like that would be right. I think that would be a bad trope. Sure. Um, and going along with that, you know what we didn't talk about, Lyndon? What? Where this game falls in the timeline and the implications thereof. Oh, yeah, that's fair. OK, so let's go ahead and get that out of the way right now. This uh, this game is placed firmly in the child timeline and. It is the furthest end of the child timeline, depending on where you think Breath, Breath of the, the Wild, Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, Kingdom fall, um, which who freaking knows? Um, nobody. Nobody knows. But so this game takes place. Um, I, I can't remember if it's 100 or 200. It takes place several. I don't know. It takes takes place at least a a century, a span of time after the events of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Um, 
in this timeline, remember that the link of Ocarina of Time was sent back from the dark future uh, as a child, was able to warn Zelda about the threat of Ganondorf. Uh, Ganondorf was thwarted by Zelda and Link and the King of Hyrule. Link goes off from Hyrule in search of Navi. That kicks off the events of Majora's Mask. Sometime after the events of Majora's Mask, that version of Link, you know, I guess comes back to Hyrule, settles down, whatever. Um, and so this version of Hyrule is the one that evolved out of that whole timeline where, you know, it, Hyrule was never flooded. Ganondorf never became Ganon. There was no seven years of darkness. Um, this is probably the most prosperous version of Hyrule that you're going to see yes. in any of the timelines. Yes. Um, and, so one thing that I, the reason I brought that up in relation to your comments about the Zelda link relationship versus the link other adjacent female character relationship is it is heavily implied, never overtly stated. I don't think that this link is a descendant of Ocarina of Time link and Malin. Right, which is uh, why, yeah. th- which is why this link still lives as a peasant, Far- uh, as a as farm a farmer, yeah, yeah, as a farmer, and he also, it's, excuse me, a ranch hand, ranch hand, which also would make sense why he has a horse named Epona, and right. like because an orphan boy like Link would never be able to save up enough money to get a full size Clydesdale draft horse by himself. Like, come on, that's unreasonable. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, like there are through lines of that that are heavily implied. I don't think they're ever outright stated, but um, yeah, I think it's really cool. The particulars of the Zelda timeline, in my opinion, are best when they're heavily implied and not outright stated. Sometimes I kind of prefer it that way. I know you do. Mm. Um, I think that was all I really had to say for section two so let's give it a positive or a negative while we're in just our takes so let's distill it distill it down what is our take yeah i would say that this is a fairly good intro section i mean is, do, do i not always do this as part six you do but like let, i just i want both of us to Sure. Okay. Did we like it? Sure. I mean, is basically the yeah. Thing. I think I liked it. I I could have used twenty percent less of it, but I, I I think I liked it. Yeah. Um. I'm in it. You know, it, it like the the story and the characters, the atmosphere. It really did pull me in. Mm-hmm. Um. I I've got investment, and I am excited to continue on with it. Like, you know, there there's definitely nothing here that is pushing me away from wanting to spend more time in this game. I'm very excited to go forward into it. And, you know, is it going to escape kind of some of the biases that we have against it coming into this playthrough? I don't know. Um, There's a lot of game left to play, but I'm feeling very positive just up front. Hard agree on, on all of that. I'm, I am really looking forward to playing more of this game. Like I, um, I'm just excited to spend more time with it and see where my, where, where my opinion takes me. Like I'm trying to be as uh tabula rasa as blank slate as yeah. I possibly can with there, it. There's just something so fun about playing what you know to be the premier Zelda game of its age. Yeah. You know, like it was, it was the Zelda of 2000 to 2000. What? When did Skyward Sword come out? 2011. Yeah. So the that decade, it was the Zelda game of that decade. 
That's pretty cool. Yep. Totally agree. All right. Oh, let's, wait, when did Woodwaker come out? Oh, two. So basically uh, half decade. Nine, nine years. Yeah. I mean, half decade. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's move on to part four, which is bloopy trails where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention. This is probably going to be pretty perfunctory. I don't think there's really much to talk about here. Nada. Nada. I mean, rupee collecting. Yay. I did collect a lot of rupees. I think yeah. I have like a I think I have like 200. How do you feel? about? There's a lot of extra rupee colors in this game. Yeah. Uh, yellow as 10 is odd. And there's uh, there's also orange as 50 later. Uh, purple was 50. Because there, you if then you, orange, you have the then lantern, orange, then orange is a hundred. There's yeah. an orange rupee in this game. There is. So if you have the lantern, go into the basement of your treehouse, and there's a chest in there. Did that you has back, fifty rupees? Did, did you backtrack? No, I just when I woke up the day. Oh that, right, yeah. right. I meant to do that and forgot to do. It. Okay, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yep. Yeah, good shout. Good also, shout. one thing I forgot to mention: this is the coziest version of Link's house I've ever seen. I would live here. Thousand percent. Uh, yeah, Link has a pretty excellent little, really awesome. little treehouse, and I, I love uh, Ordon Village. Yeah, Ordon Village is great. Yeah. Uh, I think Ordon Village uh, may be my preferred home village of the game. Mm, like, yeah. I think Skyloft might take it, except that I'm super afraid of heights. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Kind of a big detractor for me. Skyloft is a bit more bustling. I think. Yeah, I like I like it's it's more busy feeling. It feels more um although yeah, there's also Clocktown. Clocktown's great. Cl- uh, Clocktown and Skyloft have a very similar sort of that they feel they thing feel some, going they, on. There's but, it yeah. feels like the center of everything that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that about it. I would I would say Clocktown if it weren't for all the existential dread. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're assuming that the moon has been put back in its <laughs> right, place. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to part five, which is Z targeting, where we talk uh, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I think Z targeting is going to be really tough for us this game. There's so many characters to talk about. Yeah, tons. There's really cool ones. There's like, really, really, really a lot. I'm of I'm of three minds about Z targeting this week. Remember, you can choose Link, Link once, Zelda once, and yes. Midna once. Yes, I know. But, and, and part of one third of my mind on Z targeting is using zelda because we don't see her very much for the rest of the game like we talk to zelda here and then we don't see her again until the end of the game like not that i remember i could be totally wrong about that but i don't remember i don't remember interacting with her a lot either which is a shame because we just Just. got done with the game where you see zelda (laughs) Zelda for once two minutes at the very beginning and then not at all till the very end Um, i will say if you did choose to go that way I wouldn't I wouldn't say that you were crazy just because the cutscene that we get with Zelda in this section where she's having to make an impossible choice and we actually see Zelda in the context of like rulership of Hyrule. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I, I like seeing Zelda as functional ruler, not Zelda as daughter of king. Sure. Like Zelda yeah. as daughter of king in Breath of the Wild. Excellent. Yeah, like, always also love that. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but we very, very rarely get to see Zelda as functional ruler of kingdom. Yeah, sure. Which is great. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just going to use Zelda okay. for those reasons. Matt Why gets, not? Matt gets his Zelda Boom, out we're of the way. get that early. out of the way. I like it. Although my other option was Parrot that runs the potion stand. <laughs> I love that guy. That <laughs> I love that guy. So it's weird. Uh, so I'm actually kind of between uh, Mallow 
And oh, you got to save Mallow for later. Uh, that's that's the thing. I wanted to use Mallow now because Mallow has is Mallow a, a boy or a girl? No idea. I think is I think he's a boy because when Beth is talking to them about the slingshot, and then later when we're showing off our sword moves, she goes, "Show these little boys what's up." So I'm pretty oh, sure. Okay. Pretty okay, sure. Okay. So yeah. So Mallow is like there's a lot of fun little character moments. You know, just the way that Mallow talks is hilarious. Like <laughs> yeah, like it's so I, hard to push B. I know. Like <laughs> I command you. You know. It's like and Mallow is also doing that thing that I always. It always cracks me up when Zelda games do this, where like characters are self aware of the control scheme. You know. Yes. Like I love. It's really his, funny. Hysterical. I love that. That's a great recurring joke. Like it's so hard to hold L and then push forward and B at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <they're right>. It's <laughs> like it's like it's okay. like a baby telling you this. <laughs> um, I also like how. Uh, I, so here I have this in my notes. Where was it? Um, also, apparently he can run faster than Beth. <laughs> Mallow wanted <laughs> Mallow wanted to be born into a family with a slingshot instead of a water wheel. And <laughs> and here's my thing. I think these are all attainable goals, right? Like, um, but yeah, sure. Why not? Um, but at the end of the day, I think that I have to give it to Lantern Guy. Oh, he was, he was my, so I was between Parrot, Lantern Guy, and Zelda. And I went with Zelda. Lantern Guy is hysterical because. the worst business model of all time. Because one, for for whatever reason, I hear him speaking in like a Fargo, North Dakota accent. Like. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He like the, like he's saying a eh, after every sentence. He's he's every person at the Vikings bar in How I Met Your Mother that Marshall takes. Oh my god, you he's know, that. You know, you know who Lantern Guy sounds like in my mind. The hippie bard in the Secret Tunnel episode of Airbender. <laughs> Secret tunnel, secret tunnel, and secret, 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 secret tunnel. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 oh, it's a real legend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this a, it's a, called a business tactic. I know. God, it's like, he's no. got, like the worst business plan of all time. Like there's no way in the world that the lantern oil is giving you a better return on investment than, than a lantern. Than you just giving away lanterns. And also what is one thing that they tell you about startup businesses is location, location, location. And he has picked one of the worst locations ever. Like when you go up to him, he's like, hey, I don't see many people out here. Well, okay, if you don't see anybody, who are you selling lantern oil to yourself? That's not how that works. Uh, lantern guy and potion shop parrot are just selling each other their own <laughs> products back and forth forever. It's just a cyclical, it's just yeah. a cyclical uh, money because, transfer. Because potion shop parrot does sell lantern oil. He does. And so he's got to be getting that from somewhere. I mm. think that, yeah, I think there's a supply chain happening here. Mm. It's completely isolated and I don't think it has like any potential for expansion at any point <laughs> ever, but <laughs> the two worst business people of all time. And one of them is a parrot, <laughs> which you can't blame him. He also, also kudos to the parrot for like encouraging people to pay on their way out but not forcing them to and only it and like yeah <laughs> I mean, come on pay as you feel led you know <laughs> i'll attack you if you don't oh no mm-hmm. yeah so anyway guy. lantern guy yeah. is gonna be my z targeting pick uh let's get into part six which is final thoughts where we let matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can think to do 
We start off our next adventure with some real emotional investment in our characters and in the place which we find ourselves, the setting of Ordon Village. Uh, we spend a very long, possibly too long, intro section with uh, everybody and around this area. And as we're about to set off on our adventure to Hyrule Castle, which is supposed to be pretty lackadaisical we instead find ourselves thrust into the midst of a high high tension situation where everything has gone awry and the entire kingdom has been thrown into chaos uh, we spend another long section of game uh, really exploring the mechanics of our game's gimmick which is our wolf link transformation uh meeting our intro or meeting our companion character who starts off with very strong personality uh leading up to a conversation with uh princess zelda who we see as the functional ruler of hyrule for the one of the first times in the series um capping it all off with a great uh, flashback sequence uh, detailing the story of how we got here. All in all, a strong section of game with high emotional investment, but probably just a little bit too long and that overstays its welcome. Well done, as always, Matt. Are you excited to go play some more Twilight Princess? If it wasn't midnight, I would go play it tonight. Well, I don't, I don't mean tonight. I mean, no, I was, okay. but I'm saying that's how excited I am. Yeah. If it wasn't midnight and I was, didn't have to go to the office tomorrow, <sighs> I would be playing it tonight. It is midnight. I don't have to go to the office tomorrow because I work remote. Yeah, it's because the company is in Seattle. Yes, however, it is Tuesday night, and that means that I'm going to be up until 1 o'clock watching Ahsoka. So. Ah, fair enough. Yes, so anyway. But yeah, I'm stoked to play more Twilight Princess. Can't wait. <laughs> been a, this has been a fun episode, Matt. I, you know... I want to apologize if this one seemed a little bit more meandering than what we normally do. Like it, it is really tough when we don't have a dungeon to really structure everything around. Um, but man, can you imagine if we had tried to like incorporate a dungeon into this as well? It's just like, <laughs> no, it just wouldn't have the, the plot worked. recap alone would have killed me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and just it, for everyone's just for everyone's knowledge, I worked on the plot recap for literally three hours. That's how long it took me to put this plot recap together, um, which is not I think it's the longest I've ever spent on a plot recap, maybe or close to. Well, it not, was 11 pages. They're not so. going to get any shorter from here, Bob. Well, Maybe not. We'll see. I think I think we need to relook at the schedule and break some stuff up because we are. I bet. I, I, yes, we we probably will break some episodes up. But at the same time, we like we we just can't be doubling the size of the season either. No, you know, like no. Uh, so, um, but yes, we will. We'll be looking at it. So pay attention to our social channels and all those other places. If you're on the discord on the Patreon, um, we will probably have some updates. Uh, episode five, which is the arbiter's grounds, which also contains the master sword stuff. That seems like a prime candidate for some splittage, but yep, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Agree. All right, Matt, let's get into the outro, get out of here for the week. And just a reminder, everybody, uh, if you're on the Patreon Tune in on Friday to catch a bonus episode as well, covering something completely different and um, less good than this. <laughs> oh, you know what? I had one note that I forgot to mention. Oh, yeah. I should have named my horse Catherine. Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<sighs> Truly the most storied and legendary steed in oh, the history God. of Hyrule is it's Catherine. Catherine. <laughs> My God. Woof. Oh, that show, man. It's really it's something. Bad. All right, y'all, if you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and get access to... Hmm. You can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show, and that makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacredrealmspod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Twilight Princess Chapter 2. Twilight Princess can be played in its original form on either the Nintendo GameCube or the Nintendo Wii. The HD version can be played on the Nintendo Wii U, or the game is able to be emulated uh, on a variety of platforms, but please don't do that unless you legally own the version of the game that you are emulating. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent, listener-supported podcast, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Business operations are handled by Matt Willoughby. Our music is generously provided by Darknuck and is available to listen to on Spotify. Finally, we'd like to thank Nintendo for continuing to create such exceptional and innovative experiences.